My name is Dr. Angie Sadegi and I'm here with SoFlo Vegan. And welcome back to another episode of the SoFlo Vegans podcast. I'm your host and founder of SoFlo Vegans, Sean Russell. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Angie Sadegi, who is a prominent gastroenterologist that travels the country educating people about the gut and diseases and disorders affecting the digestive tract. Joining us as our co-host for this episode is our media coordinator, Alba Mendez. This episode of the SoFlo Vegans podcast is brought to you by the Plant Chicks 30-Day Challenge. We're excited to be partnering with them to help you ditch the diet and get on a sustainable lifestyle. Go to SoFloVegans.com slash plant dash chicks for more information about their 30-day challenge and to learn more about this amazing community. Also, remember to leave a review and subscribe to our show by going to SoFloVegans.com slash podcast. Your support will help us reach more people and aid in our mission of making South Florida a global hotspot for veganism. So with that being said, enjoy our conversation with Dr. Angie Sadehi on the SoFlo Vegans podcast. You are listening to the SoFlo Vegans podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the SoFlow Vegans podcast. By now, you probably have listened to every single episode that we've ever done. But if you haven't, we are an organization in South Florida dedicated to making it a global hotspot for veganism. So we bring amazing guests like our guests today onto our show so we can learn more about what they do as well as you learn about they do as well. So before I introduce our guest, I like to tease it a little bit. I want to introduce <laughs> our co-host for this podcast and she's going to introduce our guest. Hello, hello. Hey guys, it's Alba and I'm so excited. You guys have no idea how much I appreciate this doctor. I have learned from her so much. It's none other than Dr. Angie Sadegi. Welcome. Hey guys, thank you for having me. I love your cause. Thank you for what you're doing. And the good thing is that Dr. Angie, have, you know, I'm a nurse, she's a doctor, we met and we pretty much just clicked because we were just talking so much and not to gross anybody out, but this is an episode that we're going to talk about the function of the GI pretty much. We're going to talk about poop. We're going to talk about the colon. So we had a lot of things in common. Sorry, Sean. <laughs> well, I have, I have those things, so I'm not excited. <laughs> he does have those now. things. <laughs> so let's get started. Go ahead, Sean. So, yes, yeah, so I wanted to first... We- Every single podcast, we start off with your origin story. Like, how did you go down this path? Because I know in in the medical um, field, you know, you're taught a certain way, but to go in the opposite direction, I know you might come up against some things with that. So how did you start moving into that plant-based direction? So, you know, Sean, I've always been such an animal lover. I mean, as a doctor, as a nurse, Abba would tell you the same thing. We are very tend to be very compassionate people. We uh, tend to want to save lives, right? No one in the medical field really wants to. Most people, I would say, wouldn't want to go kill things and harm things. We're, we have this almost like an um, obsession with saving lives and helping people and um, just um, saving the world. And, um, and I would say that most doctors are along and nurses think along those lines where we're just help, help, help. And if you ask me, why do you want to go in the medical field 15, 20 years ago? Actually, I knew I was going to be a doctor when I was nine years old. It'd be to help other people and to help uh, take suffering away. So about 15 years ago, I was sitting with my friend who was a vegan and I was having a meal with her. Her name is Sarah. She was a resident at University of Southern California where I was getting trained for my internal medicine training and I asked her why she wasn't eating meat and she told me that she was a vegan. I, I asked her with surprise, well, why are you a vegan? And she said, well, because I love animals and I couldn't um, torture animals. And um, at that moment, I made a little bit of a connection in my brain that I, so I thought, wow, I have this little furry little dog at home 
And uh, it was like, she was like my baby. I couldn't mm. imagine anybody harming her or hurting her, or um, I can't imagine killing her to eat her. So then I thought, okay, well, what's the difference between a dog and a cat and a cow or a sheep or a goat, a lamb? And, you know, I started making these connections right away. And it's because of this love I had for my pet. So at that moment, I realized that what I was doing didn't make sense. I mean, I was being a complete hypocrite, paying someone to slaughter a sentient being who has feelings, who has um, pain, who feels suffering. And I was inflicting pain upon these, these sentient beings. And I realized that I just couldn't do that anymore. So I went vegetarian. This is about 15 years ago. But the connection between the dairy industry and suffering and pain upon animals did not click until I learned through listening to podcasts like yourselves uh, and other uh, talk to other people. And so this is why these podcasts are so important because everybody tells their story and people start making connections. Um, so I learned about the cruelties of the dairy industry. I realized that they're 10 times worse than the meat industry in what they do. Yeah. So at that moment, um, I decided about uh, in 2014 that I wasn't going to consume any dairy at all. Uh, coincidentally, I was trying to get into shape. I was, I had some illnesses, um, and the good karma came my way because of my being a good person and not wanting to inflict harm on animals. I ended up, uh, getting so many different benefits, uh, by going plant-based. I also watched forks over knives. I started really educating myself and I realized that even though I was a physician, I had no idea. I had not made the connection between food and medicine, like food being medicine, I mean. I had not made the connection between how food can be healing to the body. So then I made that connection and I decided to incorporate all kinds of uh, plant-based uh, nutritional factors into reversing disease. Uh, so again, uh, coincidentally, I um, realized that about a week after going plant-based, I realized there are so many benefits that are I was experiencing. Number one, I had debilitating, debilitating eczema. I had pustular lesions all over my body. It, I looked like I had chicken pox. My, my eczema was as, as severe as it, it can get. It was like one step. Have you seen patients with psoriasis, with plaques all over their bodies? Well, I wasn't far from that. It's like almost like a spectrum. I, I looked horrible, but I didn't even care about the fact that I looked horrible. I couldn't sleep every night because I was itching all night in pain. So I was taking Benadryl and Atorax. And if you ask Alba, Alba would know Atorax like knocks you out. And I couldn't function very well because I was taking these antihistamine medicines. And um, I was putting tons and tons of corticosteroids uh, on my skin. Not even one single dermatologist I had seen had ever told me that you may be allergic to dairy because most people are. I mean, we're not cows. Why are we consuming a cow's milk? It turns out that the casein and the way in dairy um, reactions where people are, are allergic to it. Now, I didn't have lactose intolerance, so I didn't have the massive diarrhea, bloating, constipation, and GI problems, but I ended up being allergic to it. And I had sinus problems from it. I couldn't breathe, blah, blah, blah. I can go on and on. But anyway, within like five or seven days, I had zero eczema. I mean, you can look at my whole body now, zero eczema. It all went away, disappeared. I've been able to sleep well at night and uh, my sinuses got better. My cholesterol went down. Um, I had uh, some depression that went away. And the most exciting one of all, is I, if you go back, um, I, I got so excited about this. I, I used to uh, post a ton of my workout pictures because literally within uh, several months, you guys, my waistline shrank. I was gaining muscle, losing fat. And I looked so good suddenly. I was like looking in the mirror at the gym. I was like, whoa, who's that? You know, uh, people thought I was a fitness model, which was awesome. You know, I was this 
doctor at a fellowship, nerdy. I had some fluff on me, and then suddenly my body like shrunk, where I was like I I was like muscular and and shredded. And people would come up to me at the gym for fitness advice, as I as if you know I was a fitness trainer. It was so good. Um. So anyway, for those of you who are listening, if you have any health problems, I would highly suggest that you consider this whole food plant based diet. And um, I I know a lot of people are having problems with uh, weight management. I can assure you that if you truly eat whole food plant-based, you will you will never gain weight and you will start losing weight and you will start you're, you'll start shaping your body as you have always dreamed. The sad reality, and you can attest to this, of course, because you went to medical school and I went to nursing school, even for both of us, the curriculum does not include nutrition. If we get what one class for one semester, of one hour once a week of nutrition and most of that nutrition it comes from the you know the statistics or the learnings from like 50 years ago it's not yes i don't know how it is now but i mean when i went to nursing school seven eight years ago that's how it was and it's still the same way for us too abba and and you know the sad reality is you're right exactly like you said i want to highlight what you just said is they send test they, they teach you some statistics but they don't correlate the healing power of plants and plant-based nutrition with disease. So they just teach teach you some facts. Okay, here's the macronutrients, here are the micronutrients, and that's about it. They don't make the correlation. But further one, I, I want to, like, okay, so you're a nurse, I'm a doctor. Um, we would say, okay, well, we didn't learn nutrition. But if you speak to dietitians, you're talking about registered dietitians and nutritions, and they are supposed to be experts in diet and nutrition. of them are, uh, they don't understand nutrition. I mean, imagine if they don't understand nutrition, how do you expect the rest of the population to understand nutrition? It's like going to a mechanic who doesn't know how to fix cars. Dietitians in this country do not understand um, the power of reversing disease with diet. They have misled because their curriculum is completely, um, it's it's biased by the meat and dairy industry and completely outdated. So if, I mean, it is just mind boggling how um, even the registered dietitians cannot be relied upon for diet. So we're in trouble. <laughs> we had that conversation. Remember, Sean, when we had, we actually had in our podcast, uh, Married to Health, uh, Dahlia and James Marin and their registered dietitians. And they were discussing that, that when they went, it was pretty much things that were being said 50 years ago. Nothing was updated. Nobody talked about a whole food plant-based diet. Pretty much the dietitians are told, okay, you need your protein, which is some form of meat on your plate, et cetera, et cetera. And I explained to them, I even told them that when my father got diagnosed with diabetes, because he was he's not not even a vegetarian but now he's reaping the rewards of his choices the dietitian there also wanted him to okay well stop eating red meat but you're okay with having fish in a clean meat she called it that a clean meat it will be your chicken (laughs) which brings us to the question here you are a gastroenterologist a gi doctor let's discuss that because it goes from mouth to anus the structures of the GI. What is that? What are the the systems that include that? What are the organs that are included in that? So uh, the GI tract, as you said, starts from the mouth and um, it ends at the anus. So it's a very long, tortuous tube. It also in, includes the liver, the pancreas, um, and um, the gallbladder. So, um, but you know, the largest organ of all is actually the gut microbiome. From mouth to anus, we have about it trillion organisms living in our gut that actually are responsible for most of the breaking down of the food rather than our own digestive enzymes, which play a very small role in the in the whole process of digestion. So the gut microbiome plays an important role and can make you or break you depending on what you're putting in your mouth. Ooh. Now, when you say the gut, and you're probably going to go into this, but when you say the gut microbiome, what is, how can... I'm having a hard time visualizing what that, what that even is. Yeah. Uh, so, so Sean, we used to think that the GI tract is just one long tube from mouth to anus. And in the last uh, couple of decades, we are realizing that our, there are these microscopic um, organisms. Like, you know, if you look at your hand, there's, uh, you can't see, but there's organisms living on your hand. Now, imagine the... Um, 
the dirtiest surface in on the ground or on the t- on your table or in your bathroom is not as dirty as the gut, where there are hundreds and hundreds of trillions of gut microbiome living there. These organisms are microscopic. You can't see them, but they play an important role in um, your health and disease. Um, when you eat... Uh, what happens is the food acts as a substrate for these organisms. It becomes food for the organisms. And these little guys break down the food that you eat through a process called fermentation. And they produce uh, molecules. And these molecules are, are called metabolomes. Metabolomes diffuse in through the gut wall into the blood vessel, and they can circulate all through the body from head to toe. And they can uh, manipulate a lot of biochemical reactions in your body. And depending on what kind of metabolomes are being produced, you can also call them metabolites, it's uh, interchangeable, you can promote health or disease. So I'll give you an example. If you eat a piece of meat, meat has carnitine, the gut microbiome gets a hold of this carnitine and produces a molecule called TMAO that circulates through your body and causes inflammation. On the extreme other side of the spectrum is if you eat something healthy, like a piece of broccoli, the microbiome gets a hold of that uh, that food and produces a, a molecule called a short chain fatty acid, like a butyrate molecule that also diffuses through the wall and creates a lot of um, health promoting uh, reactions in the body. So it, it's so important when you choose to put something in your mouth, realize that food can either have biochemical reactions that could lead to health or disease. I have a question. When you say a piece of meat, could that be any type of meat, fish, chicken, turkey, beef? Yes. Oh my gosh. That is such a good question. I'm glad you, um, you asked that. So it turns out that carnitine is mostly found in red meat. However, um, there's also, um, other molecules that are it found in um, in like choline that are found in dairy products and seafood products and other animal products um, like eggs. So uh, carnitine is mostly exclusively found in red meat. But like I said, choline is found in other animal products that can also help uh, the production of this inflammatory molecule called TMAO. Furthermore, fish actually has TMAO. So a lot of the fish products already have the TMAO, so it it bypasses the gut microbiome. It already has that inflammatory molecule that can diffuse right into your blood and cause problems. Yes, I I tend to believe that as as I read more and more the literature, I study the gut microbiome, I study the digestive tract, more and more I come to the conclusion that we are just not carnivores. We're not omnivores, we're herbivores. And if we stick to a whole food plant-based diet or mostly a whole food plant-based diet, we can um, really create a lot of health health benefits in our bodies. So I, I think that if, if, you know, for people who are eating meat, I would really highly recommend that they start transitioning to eating more plant-based. And um, if you're at a point where you've already eliminated a lot of the um, animal products, then you should just pull the trigger and go 100% plant-based because the more I read about the gut microbiome and the digestive tract, the more I realize anything animal product is inflammatory. So, okay, so the GI system, it was digest our food, it gives us energy, it breaks down, it also helps us with our immune system as well to keep it strong if we feed it the correct thing. However, something that you did say that we are not meant to be meat eaters in general or animal product eaters. There have been a couple of people who have argued that they're like, oh, well, you know, we have canines, we have the structures to break it down. But you as a GI doctor, how do you rebut that? Is there something, I mean, obviously the teeth, we know we are meant to grind plants, fruits, vegetables. We don't have canines like the big cats do, for example. Exactly. In our structure inside, in our GI, that cannot break down the meat. Or the yeah. Hair. Yeah. I mean, if you look at um, our GI tract, it's a very long uh, tube, a, a tortuous tube, where, where it resembles more of the herbivore GI tract. 
Um, these are definitely not canines. I mean, if I um, if I uh, set someone, if I just release them in the wild without any food and say, go hunt an animal and bite into the fur, good luck. <laughs> they will become food before they can catch that prey as food. I mean, you can't go bite into a cow's fur and eat it. So we're definitely not, uh, these are not canines. Um, we're are meant to grind food. And by the way, when you chew vegetables, you can produce uh, this nitric oxide. Um, it contributes to the um, production of nitric oxide, which is very good for the vascular system. So we're meant to chew food, chew vegetables. And um, when you look at our GI tract, if you if we were supposed to eat meat, then why is it that when we eat, um, studies are showing that we um, create this type of dysbiosis in, your, in our gut when we eat meat products? Why is it that? Right, so dysbiosis, I'll explain what that is. So when you eat, uh, uh, they've studied, so about 10 years ago, uh, researchers went to, went to areas where they eat mostly a plant-based diet, like Burkina Faso in Africa. They went to Burkina Faso, and they also went to a, a place near Venezuela, South America, where um, they're called they're Emeridians. They are eating mostly a plant-based diet. And when they studied their stool, they realized that they have a higher amount of gut microbiome diversity, which is which is health promoting. And when they compared, so now these Emeridians and these Burkina Faso uh, people are naturally almost 99% plant-based. Um, they, that's just how it is for them. And they're all two separate geographic areas. They just happen to be plant-based. And they compared it to the gut microbiome of um, Americans, like in St. Louis, who were consuming the standard American diet. And when they looked at the gut microbiome, they, they realized that Americans had far less gut microbiome diversity, which is not healthy. They had a lot better gut microbiome diversity, but furthermore, they had a lot of health-producing bacteria in their gut, whereas the Americans had a lot of um, uh, inflammatory bacteria, right? So if we were supposed to eat meat and dairy, why is it that when we um, eat meat, it creates a, an imbalance of gut microbiome, i.e. dysbiosis. So dysbiosis is just an imbalance, which is mostly um, where our body would contain more inflammatory bacteria rather than the health-promoting bacteria. And so why is it, I would ask, I mean, it's a rhetorical question, but if they're arguing that we are meant to eat meat, then why is it that eating meat promotes the production of um, unhealthy bacteria and, inf and inflammation? Perhaps it's not natural. <laughs> And will that and does that correlate to all of the uh, the the ailments that we suffer from that we see plenty of commercials covering like um, indigestion and all of those things come from us consuming I mean well, well the people consuming meat products are there other causes. Well, there are a lot of, so there are some genetic causes of health, um, like for example, I'll give you, there are a few genetic um, diseases of the um, colon and the digestive tract, which include colon cancer, a few, only a couple of percentage of all the colon cancers are due to genetic causes. Um, there are some genetic causes um, like celiac disease and, and inflammatory bowel disease, but um, Sean, most of the GI problems that I see in my clinic um, every day are due to environmental causes and one of the which means lifestyle choices and what we are eating um, and the GI tract is the most important organ when it comes to what you're eating because everything that you put in your mouth every single day every little thing that goes into your mouth interacts with the gut microbiome and um, interacts with your GI tract and can produce health or disease you choose and one of the one of the things that I'm hearing lately is that the gut is the second brain. So can you can, so can you go into like why why it plays such a pivotal role in the way we operate as a human being? Like why is the gut so important? Well, because uh, it's innervated and and very large uh, amount of nerves and nervous system. So it is. Um, and important, it plays. It's very. It's connected to the brain, and it ha it contains a lot of nerves and a lot of the neurons and um, a lot of the um, neurotransmitters that our brain um, shares. So there is a huge connection, and um, basically, it's. I believe it it contains. Um, 
after the, the brain and the spinal cord, it contains the most amount of nerves, nerves compared to the rest of the body. So perhaps that's why they call it the second brain. Okay. And, and I, that's where you get that gut feeling where you leave with intuition. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> A couple of months ago, we did uh, with the Plan Chicks. We did their uh, Garden Your Gut Challenge, where we're encouraging because all, almost all of us are, are medical professionals. Where we're encouraging our patients. You remember how we did the green thumb to eat yes. more, incorporate more plants into their into our lunch. That was yes. It was, and it, it is such. A, it was such an awesome challenge because it it helps people. Uh, choose a variety of uh, vegetables and we all get complacent sometimes and end up uh, sticking to a certain routine and mm-hmm. eating the same things over and over again and I think that challenge helps people go to the grocery store and try some vegetables that they've never tried before it helps because each uh, vegetable has um, a certain amount of fiber a certain t- type of fiber each vegetable has a certain set of gut, uh, basically macronutrients, a certain set of macronutrients. So when you get a variety of foods, you end up getting a more variety of micronutrients that are essential for the body. Um, so variety is key, and it, uh, studies show that um, ever, eating a variety of foods can improve your gut microbiome diversity so you can have a more diverse gut microbiome. That's true. So let's talk about some issues that can happen with your gut. We've heard before, we're not ratting on anybody, but SIBO. It's a reason why a lot of uh, these big time vegan influencers, quote unquote, decided to stop being vegan because of SIBO. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel really bad for them. I think they were misled by some of their practitioners who didn't understand nutrition. And um, they're like, you know, the rest of the doctors out there who don't understand nutrition. So a few of the influencers um, who had gut problems, perhaps because of their uh, lifestyle in the past, I mean, so what we don't see is that a lot of them um, may have problems with eating disorders, they may have problems with malnutrition, and all of those things cause SIBO. They may have been doing cleanses, aggressive cleanses, colonics, so all of these things can cause SIBO. And then unfortunately, when they had SIBO, when they they went to their practitioners, they couldn't identify the underlying cause of SIBO. And um, and unfortunately, because of um, their SIBO, they were limited to eating very if only a few fruits and vegetables without getting bloated. And so the practitioners were basically saying, well, you're not eating much. You're only down to like two things. And so maybe you should add fish and eggs. Not that fish and eggs have any therapeutic roles in treating SIBO, but it just, it happens so that when you get so restrictive in your diet and you eliminate all the fermentable foods out of your diet, then you have nothing to eat. So these practitioners were advising them to eat uh, fish and eggs because of lack of knowledge. To say that um, um, if, if you avoid um, fiber-rich foods, your SIBO goes away. It's like saying if you Um, It's like the whole myth about diabetes. If you don't eat sugar, your diabetes goes away because the underlying uh, cause of diabetes is actually saturated fat, right? Not sugar. So if you want to really reverse diabetes, you would have to stop consuming um, animal foods that are very rich in saturated fat. It's the same thing with SIBO to say, to, uh, you know, to say that if you stop eating fiber, your SIBO goes away, it's wrong. And to say that if you eat fish and eggs, your SIBO goes away, it's wrong. The underlying cause of SIBO is not um, eating uh, fiber products and eating a lot of fiber doesn't give you SIBO. So these, I feel bad for these influencers because I think most of them truly want to be vegan, but they were advised uh, to eat meat because they thought, oh, my SIBO will go away, which it doesn't. And I bet you anything, they're back in, in square one. They still have to battle the SIBO. What does SIBO stand for? Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is the Okay, so remember I told you that mouth anus, there are 100 trillion gut microbiome living in our gut. Where, where it, so 99% of these biome live in the large bowel, not in the small bowel. They live in the large bowel. Now, when there is over, 
um, over um, basically growth or over inoculation of these bacteria that are colonic type in the small bowel where they don't belong, that is called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So what happens is these bacteria don't, they're not supposed to be in the small bowel. So when you eat, they go through the small bowel. And if you're eating vegetables, they ferment in the small bowel that produces gas and people get a lot of bloating and gas and distension. So um, if you eliminate fiber, the SIBO doesn't go away. You know, it's, it's merely a Band-Aid therapy. And that's what I try to teach people. You want to find the underlying cause of SIBO. What got you there in the first place? It could be dysmotility of the bowel, where the bowel is not squeezing well. For example, imagine a nice clear stream where water is flowing fast. And then imagine a canal on the side of the road where the water is murky and green, full of algae, and it's static. And then the stream flowing fast. Now, if your gut is moving well and it's squeezing pretty well, then imagine it's clean, it's pushing the bacteria down. Imagine your bowel is not moving and static. It becomes like the canal on the side of the road mm. where there's wow. bacterial growth and murky water, right? It's the same thing with SIBO. So dysmotility is one of the largest, biggest causes of SIBO. Otherwise, so, so is hypothyroidism. A lot of people have hypothyroidism, which leads to dysmotility and constipation. A lot of people have... Um, eating disorders and malnutrition that causes um, SIBO. Uh, the elderly get it, people with diabetes um, get it, uh, people who have, have had inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's disease get it, any type of structural problems like diverticulosis or people who've had um, surgeries. There are a thousand causes of SIBO, but a good doctor would be able to identify the underlying cause and try to help with the underlying cause so the SIBO doesn't come back because if you don't find the underlying cause, it could come back 10 times. You could eliminate the SIBO with antibiotics 10 times. It will keep coming back. And and kind of switching gears a little bit, but still looking at different um, ailments of the gut. What about Crohn's disease? What is it exactly and how does it relate to the gut? Yeah, so Crohn's disease is a uh, disease that starts in the gut, and um, and I believe that. Uh, so uh, let, let's put it this way: there's some genetic factors uh, because when you look at people with Crohn's disease, a lot of them have the genetics, um, and they have family members with Crohn's. So there's some genetic factors, but I believe that a lot of it is environmental. When you have a destruction of the mucus layer of the gut, um, when you have dysbiosis, and um, when the tight junctions between between the cells break down, there is now some evidence that the bacteria that live the the biome, the gut microbiome that live in the gut, uh, start producing, um, uh, causing inflammation to occur. And uh, so, so the tight junctions, um, there are there is a, a protective mucus layer on the gut. And right on top of the mucus layer is the gut microbiome. So we have gut microbiome, mucus layer, and then we have the cells that are bound together with tight junctions. So based on if you're eating a high fat diet, what happens is, um, and you're eating very low fiber, what happens is the first layer, which is the, um, the biome gets out of balance. Then the mucus layer goes away and that's the protective mucus layer. Then what happens is the tight junctions between the cells break down and the gut becomes leaky. And what happens then is inflammation occurs because all these bile acids, all these um, um, endotox endotoxics and everything that you're eating goes right through the gut wall and goes into the bottom layer, which is called the lamina propria. Over there, there's a lot of lymphocytes or white cells sitting around uh, just quiescent, just waiting for um, uh, the enemy to come. And when the enemy comes, they start attacking and they flag down other white cells in the, the blood and they recruit a hundred other hundreds of thousands of other white cells um, into that area. And, and there is your inflammation. So suddenly, um, suddenly there is uh, chaos and there's all kinds of inflammatory molecules produced like tumor necrosis factors, cytokines and interleukins. And uh, all these white cells from all over are like, oh, wow, there's war, there's war. They attack, even though there's really no enemy. It's just the food choices we made. It's just those food choices that our body found foreign, you know, and so they start attacking the wall. So your own body, your own immune system is attacking your gut. 
So what happens is we have a transmural, and I'll tell you what that's a transmural inflammation, meaning from the first layer to the bottom layer of your gut is being destroyed constantly, constantly. And so what happens, inflammation spills into your blood, you get joint pains, eye problems, skin problems, it becomes a systemic um, inflammation. Furthermore, your own gut is being destroyed, obviously, and it keeps getting more inflamed and more leaky, more problems occur. And of course, then you have a tunnel, which is called a fistula, from one, one end of the gut to the outside. Then stuff leaks into your um, belly, which could cause abscesses, which could cause fluid collections that get infected. Um, you can have, so that's where fistulas happen. And sometimes you can get fistulas between the small bowel and the colon. So now poop is flowing into the small bowel. And some, that's where I was telling you Crohn's disease causes SIBO because all this poop is flowing into, it could go into the vaginal tract. So people get all these UTIs. It could go into the pelvic floor and cause an abscess. It could go into other organs. So Crohn's disease is an awful, awful disease. It's a, it's a, I don't wish it upon anyone, but I do want to reassure people that in my clinic, I have been able to induce remission with uh, medications, um, because Crohn's disease is not to be messed around. You don't want to mess with it. You want to get that inflammation to go away. So I have used um, steroids and other medicines to put people into remission. And I have successfully kept people into re in remission by giving them the plant-based um, plant diet, where I have not um, subjected them. Very few people in my clinic get subjected to those big guns like the um, TNF-alpha inhibitors. Alba would know, like Remicade and um, immune modulating um, medications. Uh, and a plant-based diet is highly effective. And in fact, studies show that if you eat a diet high in sulfur producing, um, uh, basically amino acids. So if you eat a lot of meat and dairy, that has a lot, they have a lot of um, amino acids that produce a lot of sol hydrogen sulfide that can be really bad for inflammatory bowel disease because those hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide um, producing bacteria um, produce this hydrogen sulfide and it's very toxic to the cells. So that's why when you switch people to a plant-based diet and remove these sulfur producing amino acids out of their diet, some they get better. So I really believe in the power of plants in treating Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And it means less trips to the ER because when I used to get them and they have a history of Crohn's, it's horrible seeing them riddle on the stretcher. They're in a lot of pain. We have to give them a lot of sofren to stop their nausea, stop their vomiting. Then they have to go mainly to ICU because we have to put them on antibiotics. We have to put them on Pepsid, like pumps it's a big hot mess when it comes to somebody like that. And many of them, because they, I don't, the word is not giving up, but they have no other choice. Like you said, when fistulas start happening, things start moving backwards instead of moving forward, then they start getting stomas, colostomy bags or anything like that. And truthfully, nobody really wants to carry a colostomy bag. Absolutely. And you know what the problem Alba is that when it comes to Crohn's disease, a lot of physicians are very, very, um, um, uh, gosh, their approach is very uh, much of a slow approach, meaning it's more of a, um, you know, if you have a pyramid and you have basically um, upside down approach versus downside up. So basically they go, okay, well, let's try this weak medicine here. If it doesn't work, we'll go to this other weak medicine. And if that doesn't work, we go, it's called the step up therapy. And then there's something also called the st step down therapy, which means with Crohn's disease, you don't want to mess around. Don't mess around. It, go big, go aggressive, and treat the hell out of it because you don't want fistulas to produce in the first place. If you have a high-risk patient, you want to treat that Crohn's disease immediately. Don't mess around. So I believe in the new way of treating Crohn's disease rather than the um, the step-up therapy. I believe in the, up, uh, the, the, the step-down therapy. But I've also realize that the step-down therapy that the traditional uh, doctors use doesn't include the power of plants. So no. I, go, I go hard, I go strong, I treat the hell out of it, put that remission. Basically, remember those white cells I was telling you were attacking, attacking, attacking? Well, you can't just eat plants and let those white cells to go away. That's not going to happen. What you have to do is hit it hard, put that inflammation out, put the body in a more of a uh, quiescent 
um, way and then get that mucosa to heal, the tight junctions to heal, then you use the power of plants to keep people into remission. Does that make sense? And a lot of times I don't have to use those big drugs, but a lot of vegans come to me and they're like, well, I don't want uh, or people, not just vegans, there are a lot of people who come to me and they're like, well, I came to you because I don't want to use, I don't have a magic wand. Sometimes you use medicines to your advantage to induce remission. But if you give me a chance, I tell them, I will make sure that you're not bound to take these medicines for the rest of your lives. But initially, it's an intelligent thing to do to put that inflammation out. Fascinating. You also mentioned leaky gut. Yes. The hot topic. It is a very hot topic. I mean, so leaky gut is a bad term. I think it's just a, well, it's a layman's term. In medical terms, we call it gut gut permeability. Because as you know, um, Alba, I mean, leaky gut could mean um, a fistula from one end of the bowel to the end of the, like a tunneling. Fistula is a tunneling. So I don't like to say leaky gut, gut permeability. So what happens is, like I said, the cells are bound together um, side by side by things called the tight junction. So imagine here's a cell, here's a cell, and we have a tight junction here. When these, these tight junctions break because of dietary choices, it becomes like this. So now there's a hole or a gap between the cells where things can just free flow into your blood from your gut, from your gut wow. straight into your blood, which is not normal, right? I mean, you're supposed mm-hmm. to have a barrier. Imagine if that barrier is uh, like a sieve plate, like uh, has holes in it. Well, obviously that's not good. So then you get inflammation because all the bacteria, all the bacterial products, all the bile acids, um, everything just can go free flow into your blood. And then you get inflammation like joint pains. You can get uh, manifestations of it all over your body. And that is called leaky gut. Wow. Now, question for you. One of the byproducts of this whole entire system is what we, is poop. So <laughs> I, try to, I, was, I was trying to find a way uh, to way to do it, but I, Look, I just, just going. So, so how does, how does, how can poop help us in terms of uh, seeing where we are with our gut? Because part of what's going through my head is that, that there may be things going on with my gut that I'm not picking up because I'm waiting for pain or I'm waiting for some overt sign that something's wrong. Could poop yeah. support us in that? Yeah, I think uh, the stool, I'm going to call it stool. Should I call it poop or stool? What do you guys think? We'll switch to stool. We'll switch to stool. Okay. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about stool, a.k.a. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, you know, a bowel movement is a great indication of what's going on in your digestive system. I do recommend that you don't get highly obsessed with your stool or your poop, but a normal stool is a type four stool on a Bristol scale. If you have not looked at uh, that chart, pull up a Bristol scale chart and it has type one, type two, type three, type four, type five, and type six. Type one is those pebbly hard stools that look like rabbit pellets. Type two is like a sausage, but really hard, large, and cracked. Type three is actually even worse than type two. And type four is like a snake or a banana or a sausage. Very nice and formed, smooth edges. It doesn't rip through your rectum. That's a normal poop (laughs) or a stool. Um, If you go down the chart, type five is loose, type six is like looser, and type seven is like pretty much watery diarrhea. So if you have a type four stool, good for you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) If you have tons, if you eat tons and tons and tons of fiber, you could sometimes have a type five and that's okay. It's totally normal. But if you're basically, if you look at your stool and if you have a normal stool, that's good indication most of the time that you have a healthy bowel movement. But there are other things that need to be considered. For example, people may have a type four, but they have to strain to get it out. So a normal bowel movement is you get that urge because your anus tells you you need to go. You go to the bathroom, you squeeze a little bit, it comes out, you feel like, okay, you have a good feeling of complete evacuation, you wipe, you flush, you leave. But some people go in there and they have to strain and strain and strain and like, it's like they 
almost like burst blood vessels in their brain straining so much to get the stool out. That's not normal. Some people have infrequent bowel movements, meaning they go for days and days without having a bowel movement. And that's okay on if you're not eating a lot of food, but it's not okay if you're eating food and you're having pain and discomfort, like you have to go, but you can't go. Okay, that's infrequent bowel movements. That's not good either. Which Other can people, impaction. Yes, which can lead to impaction and, and basically, which is not good. That's a whole different story. Oh, but yeah, I could give you some stories on that. I've been lucky enough that I have not had to do digital impaction. <laughs> You've Ooh, never had to do biggest, That was one of my biggest fears in nursing school when we discussed the GI system. Uh-uh. Yeah. For people who don't under, know what um, a digital disinfection is, for people who get impacted who are very constipated, so, sadly this happens a lot in children and the elderly, Sean. Why? Because the children and elderly have no, um, they have no control over what they eat. You know, the children are at the mercy of the adults who give them crap to eat, and the elderly are at the nursing homes being fed meat and dairy. So they're not getting enough fiber in their diet, and the children, of, of course, these days are eating crap at school. They're eating crap at home. They're not getting enough fiber, so they're, they get impacted. So they go into the hospital because there's a big ball of stool sitting in their colon, and that big ball of stool cannot possibly come out of an anus this big. So a digital disinfection is someone uh, like me, who is the GI doctor, or someone like um, Alba, who's a nurse. We would have to put our fingers and our hands inside and scoop out that poop, which is very painful. So I have to actually put people under anesthesia sometimes to dig all that stuff out. It's a very, very smelly situation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, um, on Gosh, that I'm note, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have written a book, which I'm really yeah. excited. I know you're going to be sending me one because I did request one that is signed with duck, with love. Oh. And just a deggy, but let's talk about your book because we discussed that with um, with Married to Health, uh, James and Dahlia. Yeah, so you know, you guys, when I transformed my health and body, I was so motivated to write a book because I was just like, wow, I feel amazing, and I wanted to share with the world how I feel, and I wanted to share with the world how they can easily, easily achieve what I achieved by making some simple, very simple changes in their diet and in their lifestyle. And I called it the trifecta of health because it's about changing your diet a little bit, um, adding some fitness into your lifestyle and making sure your hormones are balanced. And to me, that is the trifecta that saved my life. And I wanted to share that with the world. I used to have depression. I used to have um, a lot of mood swings um, right before my cycles. I was eating a lot of dairy and I was estrogen dominant. I was having a lot of migraines. Um, and so, you know, I had very heavy cycles out of control. I had fatigue. I had this afternoon crash, which most Americans experience. Like right at two o'clock, I was like, my head would (laughs) drop and I couldn't think anymore. I was like done. I was doing some, uh, I was doing my fellowship and research in stem cell research back in, um, like back at USC before I started my clinical fellowship, I was getting my postdoctoral uh, degree in stem cell research and I could not think. I mean, you need to be on top, on top of the world and be thinking and thinking. And I was reading articles and I would fall asleep. I couldn't function, you guys. It was terrible. And I had to drink a ton of coffee to stay awake. And I realized that I was getting that afternoon crash. It was because of my diet and my hormonal imbalances. So now it's like, I'm like that energizer battery, which I can keep going and going and going. I can do circles around my 11-year-old son, and I can just like, I'm a shaker and a mover, and I'm doing all kinds of things all day, and there's no stopping me. Um, And then the nice thing is when I hit the pillow, I fall asleep, so I have no problems with insomnia, even though I have this immense energy in the morning all the way up till like 10 p.m. when I hit the pillow, I'm like out. So that's good hormonal balance. That's good uh, functioning of your body. If you don't have that, well, it's easy to, to get it. I didn't always have that. I wasn't born with it. I was making a lot of bad dietary choices, which I had hormonal imbalances from, which I had diseases from. And when I got rid of these diseases by eating healthy, it all went away. So read my book. I have some good hints of how to achieve that trifecta. <laughs> and where can people um, get your book? 
Well, if they call my office, um, it, it's listed in my bio. Follow me, first of all, on Instagram, Angie.Sadegi. And um, my bio would list my phone number. And if you um, click on the website and call my office, I can send you, sign a copy and send it to you wherever you are. That's going to be my early Christmas present because I pretty much have the books of almost all our our guests who have been on the on the podcast. I don't have yours, so it's coming. <laughs> I'm really excited to read it because as a nurse, I mean, you know, nurses and doctors are a little bit different that nurses can go to different specialties and we can learn from each area. But most doctors just say one. And I just want to learn a little bit more about the GI because I remember some of the fellows that I met, they were like, oh, yeah, I finally decided to go to the GI track. And I was like, why? <laughs> this is like three years ago as a vegan. I was like, why? So it, what I love is that you continue to learn things that you didn't even, I had no idea about how the gut affects everything else. So I really, really love that. And I want to learn more about it since that is not my area of, of specialty that I have. I'm not a GI nurse. Yeah. Well, there's a little bit about the gut, but there's also about like there's other there's there are other things that I talked about in the book. Um, my next book is going to be all about the gut. Oh, I love it. So last um, before we start wrapping up last area, because this is another thing that I remember. I mean, people are all about cleansing. We say we want to cleanse our bodies, we want to cleanse our stomachs. Let's talk about that. Uh, yeah. Coffee enemas, enemas. Are those okay to do? Are they recommended? Do you think it's a good thing to do? Well, let me um, give you an, and before I, uh, I answer your question, um, let me ask you a question. Yes. Imagine your skin, right? Your skin has a layer of cells and on top of it, there is um, some moisture and some bacteria living in there. What would happen if you took that, that skin and scrubbed it clean every day with uh, 10 times a day and you just kept cleaning and cleaning and cleaning and cleaning what happens is that's right and you see these people with what they call OCD obsessive compulsive disorder they overwash their hands you you see what their skin looks like dry and and really cracked so it's not natural to be so obsessive about cleaning uh, parts of your certain parts of your body um, so bacteria is supposed to live on bod bodily surfaces. We live in a very symbiotic relationship with bacteria or funguses, like candida. People are obsessed about getting rid of their candida. And I'm like, why? So the gut, remember the 100 tri trillion gut microbiome that I was talking about? 99% of them are supposed to be in the colon, which makes the colon one of the dirtiest places on earth. But guess what? Here's the news flash. It's supposed to be dirty. If you try to clean it, you're going to cause dysbiosis, an imbalance of bacteria. Over, overdoing cleanses, overdoing um, the, these colonics. and I mean, nobody should ever, ever do a colonic. Um, and sometimes when you do colonics, what you do is you wash out the gut microbiome, the healthy gut microbiome. There was a similar thing people used to do in the 90s. Do you remember, you guys, there was TV commercials about it? Uh, douching, where people would wash their vaginal tract, and that was disturbing the gut microbiome, not the gut microbiome, the vaginal microbiome. Of it's usually recommended, from what I remember, for after pregnancies or whenever you have something going on that they want us to douche or anything like that to cleanse the pH. But I mean, now we know that the pH of the vagina, the vagina is self-cleaning. Yes, so you're not supposed to disturb that biome in there. And when you douche, you're actually doing yourself a disservice or people were getting yeast infections and stuff like that. So the colon is the same way. It's supposed to be the dirtiest uh, surface in the world. And when you try to cleanse it, what it does is it causes an imbalance. And so let it be dirty, embrace the dirty colon, and don't try to cleanse it. And colonics are not a good idea. Colonics um, are basically, to me, um, there's really no role in the colonics um, on a routine basis. Sometimes when people have impactions of stool and you want to do an enema to get it out, because otherwise it would be stuck there, it's an emergency, you have no choice by all means, fine, go for it. But um, unfortunately, there's these old wives' tales about uh, colonics, so people are participating in frequent uses of them, and they mess up the pH balance in there, they kill the bacteria, they, called, uh, they cause a, a disturbance, and they cause actually disease. So to cleanse your colon, instead of doing a coffee enema or an enema or fleet enemas, fiber. 
Yes. I mean, eat a lot of fiber and actually, you know, instead of, so coffee has antioxidants, right? Um, instead of pushing it up into your rectum, just drink it. I mean, what's the point of doing every part of your GI tract has a certain acid base balance. For example, your stomach, the pH is like two or less, which is very, very acidic. Your duodenum, the pH goes up to like four to seven, which is uh, close to seven because of the bicarbonate that comes from your pancreas for digestion. That's very alkaline. Then you go down the GI tract and it gets more acidic. Your uh, the Fatty acid production um, basically uh, changes the acid base balance in the, in the colon. And so, from one end of the colon to the end, other end of the colon, the acid base balance changes based on your diet and um, the short chain fatty acid production. If you try to, to change that environment, you're causing um, a disservice to your body. Um, what you have to do is eat a lot of fiber and let those short chain fatty acids control the pH balance. And that will control uh, the bacteria, uh, the environment of the bacteria. If you think you can control the environment of this bacteria better than your body can, you're wrong. <laughs> There's, it's too complicated. Don't try to do copy enemas to fix nature. All you have to do is eat, eat healthy and let that pH balance manage itself. Now, do are laxatives in the same boat? Like when, when would be appropriate to use that or is it even appropriate? On your own. Well, laxatives, uh, it's a it's a multi-billion dollar industry now. If you go to the stores, there's Miralax, there is Dolcolax, there's osmotic laxatives, there's stimulant laxatives. Laxatives are unfortunately um, very commonly used. In my opinion, laxatives should be last resort. Like someone is eating very, very healthy and they still can't go. That would be in a scenario where, where well, if they don't take the laxatives, they, they'll be impacted. So that maybe a scenario where they they have no choice but to take it but it should not be used frequently people should uh, figure out why they're constipated and instead of relying on laxatives they should fix their diet so they can go sean the average american gets about 15 or less grams of fiber per day mm. <laughs> imagine how little that is like i get about 100 grams of fiber so an average american who gets 10 or 15 grams is not going to be able to poop on their own that's why they're taking laxatives so if people are 99 percent of people are constipated because they're eating meat and dairy mm. that's why they're constipated they're not eating fiber animal products that doesn't have fiber in them so that's 99 percent. now that one person who needs it sure i mean what are you going to do um it, then you know if they're smart they would go to a doctor who's a gi doctor who is uh, holistic in their approach and they would find out why they're constipated. I have vegans who are constipated, but it's not due to lack of fiber. It's due to hormonal problems like thyroid problems. It's due to pelvic floor dysfunction. It's due to other endocrinopathies. So as a good doctor, one would look to see why, but that's not even a majority of people. Most vegans have no problem having balance because they're eating upwards of 100 grams of fiber per day. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's okay. It's normal to go to the bathroom after every meal three, four times. Yeah. So I, I so if you're eating three, four thousand calories a day, you're gonna go to the bathroom more often than someone who's eating twelve hundred calories per day. Right. So I always tell people, don't compare yourself to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> you're your own your own person. <laughs> you have your own uh, set of uh, bodily metabolisms and functions. Um, you could go once a day, you could go once every three days, as long as it comes out normal and you don't have to strain and it doesn't, um, you have a good feeling of complete evacuation, that's fine. Now it could be once a day, it could be three times a day, it could be once every three days. As long as you're not having bad symptoms from it, that's totally normal. And what was the name of the, that chart again that you mentioned earlier when we we're talking about stool? <laughs> the Bristol scale. I have a chart in my in my office and people love that chart. They're like, Doug, that's my poop. See, I'm sick of it. Help me. They like point to their poop and they're so excited that I have a poop chart in my office. <laughs> and so, so I mean, why first I want to thank you again for being on the podcast and for having this conversation with us. You know, every time we have a guest on the podcast, we're learning more and more about the whole body. And are there anything that we maybe something we didn't cover that you want to address yeah. before we wipe up? 
You guys know what people are so obsessed about? Yeast and candida. Have you guys gotten questions about what do I do? So uh, there are these stool tests where people, so everyone thinks they have candida. I have news. Yes, you do, because that's normal. I have candida, you have candida, everyone has candida. Candida is a normal resident of the biome, right? Remember yeah. I said there are different types of organisms living in the gut. That includes viruses and, and candida and bacteria. So now the obsession is how do I get rid of my candida? And what they do is they go to the doctors and these doctors are ordering some stool tests and the stool tests are not supposed to be used for clinical uh, treatment right now. These are purely experimental. There's no clinical utility to these stool tests. So what they do is um, they order these uh, GI mapping of the stool and it shows that they have candida and they freak out. Oh, Candida, well, it's supposed to be there. It's okay. <laughs> Take a deep breath and embrace it. So, look, here's the thing. If you look at the soil, I've really had I had a real um, aha moment because I studied the soil and I realized, wow, the soil is supposed to have bacteria and candida and yeast. And when you get rid of the yeast, the bacteria becomes imbalanced and causes like almost like an imbalance of uh, of the uh, the microbes in the soil. Our GI tract is the exact same way. The candida kind of controls the bacteria overgrowth and the bacteria controls the candida. So it's a yin and yang. And if you destroy that balance, you're going to be in trouble. So a lot of people do these aggressive candida cleanses, which is a bad idea. Okay. Try not to cleanse anything. Don't detox anything. Don't do any of these aggressive things to kill anything. All you have to do is start eating healthy. So what is a detox? Detox to me means start eating a whole food, plant-based diet every single day and avoid toxins um, and pesticides and avoid um, cigarette smoking, avoid alcohol, avoid um, processed foods, meat and dairy and eggs. That to me is detox every single day of your life. So now if you think you're going to eat McDonald's and the next day go on this fake detox program and everything's going to be okay, you're wrong. That, that, that to me is not detox. That's just some BS thing you paid for uh, over the internet and got ripped off. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, the best detox is eating good foods and the fiber cleans your gut and it contributes to the production of short chain fatty acids, which heal your gut. So don't try to get rid of your candida. Don't try to overly aggressively cleanse your body. And with closing remarks, Alba, is there anything, final remarks you want to make? Thank you so much. Thank, thanks for waking up early. I know in California it's early compared to down here in Florida. So My really pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you too. You, your questions were so pertinent. Uh, these are things that people wonder all the time about. So it was very clinically applicable. So I really appreciate you, you guys spreading the message and uh, teaching people, people how to live healthier. And one more time, remind everyone where they can find you. Instagram, um, Angie.Sadegi on Instagram. And my website is www.drangiehealth.com. And once again, we want to thank Dr. Angie Stegi so much for being on our show. And we will see you all next time. Hi, I'm Marcia Prince. I'm Jackie Tarleton. And we are the Plant Chicks. Are you ready to get off those crazy fad diets and on a sustainable lifestyle? Are you ready to gain energy, reduce inflammation, and think more clearly? Well, we've got the plan for you. We have whole food plant-based recipes, grocery lists, workouts for every fitness level, and of course, two awesome coaches. If you want to lead a whole food vegan lifestyle, then take the 30-Day Plant Chicks Challenge. 